biggest piece of medicine they need. Medicine Remix. Good old Doc's over there at Med Remix, the best station on Anchor. You guys are doing amazingly and you do some of the best stuff out there. And, uh, well, no, you know what? The best stuff out there, frankly. There's no one else really doing what you guys are doing in general on the internet. Shout out to the Medicine Remix. Shout out to uh, Medicine Remix who put me onto Anchor. Hi, this is my first call and I wanted to say how much I love Medicine Remix. I love all the music you guys select and sample and how you keep medicine interesting. You know, I really just want to show my gratitude for what you put out on the Medicine Remix show. Because every time that I listen to it, I just get so impressed. I really appreciate you guys putting me in your uh, little intro. That is awesome. I am very appreciative of that because uh, you are my favorite anchor station. Thanks a lot, guys. Love your channel. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm loving it. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate the content. What else can I say? Today's Medicine Remix show is brought to you by Notrin. No, no, not Motrin. No, no, I'm talking about Notrin. N-O-Trin. What the fuck is that, you ask? Well, I'm glad you fucking asked. Notrin is the first ever anti-yes tablet. An over-the-counter strategy for the people saying yes to the things they don't really want to fucking do. Ask your doctor or your damn self if Notrin is right for you. Notrin anti-yes tablets. Time back guaranteed if you just say no. Now, back to enjoying Medicine Remixed on Anchor, if you want to. Come on, you know you want to. Medicine Remix! <laughs> no trend! <laughs> oh, please pass it out, brother! Please pass it out! I was just talking about this. I think it was on Periscope. <laughs> no trend. I gotta echo this. <laughs> That's the best. There is a study out there. I'll find it and I'll post it. It basically talks about how knowing more than one language is one of those potential factors that can can slow the progression or pre even prevent the, the formation of diseases like uh, Alzheimer's and particular types of dementia just because you're exercising so many different areas of your brain. Parts of your brain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hell, that makes sense to me, man. I, I uh, For people who don't know, the problem with funding things like that is that most big studies that are well planned uh, cost millions of dollars and the people who fund them are drug companies right so the reason the drug company is funding them is because they have a drug sure. that they can help that. with that they want, they want it to look good they want it to look good and they want it to be approved by the government for use for that specific disease so they're willing to put 10 million dollars into it because they know if this drug pans out that on the back end they're going to get paid a bunch of work but if you and i believe that you know, crossword puzzles can slow down Alzheimer's, and we want to conduct this giant study. We can do it. We just need five million dollars, right. and then at the end of it, we learn, yeah, crossword puzzles help, and we don't make any money. We just prove something that now anybody can do. You can go buy a crossword puzzle. Unless I had the biggest crossword absolute company absolutely. in the world, then it'd be a different ball game.
but that's the reason why studies like this are hard to find you know that are long well done studies right. ay que casualidad hoy me hizo un recording en español en mi estación y ustedes están hablando de bilingualism que casualidad <laughs> I made a trip uh, from upstate New York uh, uh, to New York City, and uh, there was two monks, like from Tibet, uh, who were needing a ride because uh, they were trying to get to uh, to Penn Station because they were gonna take a, a bus from there. Long story. Anyway, so I said, "Yeah, man, I can give you guys a ride." They were friends of a mutual friend of mine. As long as you're taking the eightfold path to yeah, get here. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm super excited, right? I'm thinking, "Well, that's awesome." ride with a couple monks so uh monks get in the car and now uh here we are there's me and two monks and a bunch of luggage and we're just talking and I, there's something every question that you ever wanted to ask a monk you know like i, I started just start asking like the stupid like have you ever seen a monk fly like could you fly really <laughs> and uh you know and of course i they can't fly but uh, you know i'm just you know breaking the ice with them and so finally um have you Have you seen the picture of the monk on fire? Yeah. Old picture from, I don't know, the 70s, I guess. Mm -hmm. Of a monk who uh, had another monk pour gasoline on him and uh, lit him on fire. And it was in protest. Um, nonviolent. I guess, can you say nonviolent if you're burning yourself? Uh, maybe? I guess if you're uh, not doing it to other people. Yeah, if you're not running around throwing <laughs> gas on Technically. other people. Yeah, well, so, but the amazing thing about it is that he does it sitting, you know, in the lotus position and isn't screaming so my question was was he drugged up because i had always heard that these guys got really high on opiate uh -huh. on opium excuse me and and then did it but anyway he's not screaming lights himself or his buddy lights him on fire and he burns um and the act of doing that is called self-emulation mm -hmm. um you know monks are doing that now like, really? like today like in protest yeah Tibet is still protesting okay. and guys are still lighting themselves on fire. Anyway, so I'm talking to these monks about that. and Yeah, what did they say about that? You know, they, they, they talked about it and they talked about how it's an awful thing, but that how they're doing it uh, as self-sacrifice. And, and they're basically talking about how they're doing it and they're doing it out of a, a, a way to try to bring attention. Like, how can we bring attention without hurting anybody versus flying a plane right. I was into, just about to, you know, yeah. into buildings and killing? So when he said it that way, I thought, what a powerful thing, man. So I'm talking to them about that and basically just learning about Tibet, man, and learning about, here's the best thing. The best moment with, with, with the monk, uh, one of the monks, is we stopped to get gas. And these are monks, right? So I'm thinking these are like spiritual like giants, right? Yeah, of course. So I'm putting gas, and he says, I'm going to go into the gas station. And I said, okay, cool. He goes in. I'm pumping gas. And he comes back. And uh, he, He's just like, I hope he's not going to ask no. me to pour gas. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I know how this story ends. <laughs> no. Oh, that would have been awful. I would have done it. <laughs> If you want me to pump unleaded 89 on him, I, I, amen. All in the name of Tibet. Oh, my um, God. And... He, he, we sit down and he turns to me and he offers me a Slim Jim. <laughs> in my head, man, I'm thinking like, something about this is so wrong. You man. didn't know that Slim Jim was the key to enlightenment? <laughs> no. 
knew What's wrong the, with you? I knew it was the key to irritable bowel syndrome, but I didn't know <laughs> it would bring me closer to God. But here's what it did for me. It really uh, helped me understand that, you know, when people think of meditation and when people think of spiritual enlightenment, nothing happens to you visually, right? You don't fucking have a glow around you, right? You don't now float, right, when you become enlightened. It's mental, right? And this idea of uh, uh, because of the robes they wear and all of a sudden that there's something special, they're people, man. And talking to these bona fide monks, real monks, and I'm eating a fucking Slim Jim in a rented Volvo, yeah. right? And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, fucking, isn't this life awesome? Yeah. Like, what an amazing thing, man, to be sitting here with a guy who lived in the fucking Himalayan mountains and I'm having a Slim Jim with him Doesn't in New York City. And I'm thinking, dude, this is fucking awesome. Like, That's wild. And, and basically the last thing they said to me, and I said, I can't let you out of the car unless you give me the meaning of life. And he starts laughing, right? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, be flexible. Just be flexible. That's beautiful. Be flexible, people. Be flexible, goddammit. And on that, we're going to flex on you, and we're going to leave because it's game time. That's so, right. Thanks for listening, and be flexible. Be flexible. I heard a story recently, I forget who was telling it, but somebody was out in the Congo for a couple years and uh, they, they were out in the Congo for a couple years and the, he, the guy said, when I got there, I, I said, I need toilet paper and they directed him to the, to the market, right? Right. And he said, he goes to the market, he's in the goddamn Congo, he goes to the market and there's a roll of toilet paper, just a roll <laughs> sitting there and he's like, well, this is what yeah. I'm using. This yeah. is, so he buys a roll of toilet paper. Repeats the process as long as he's there in the Congo. And he said he comes back to the United States and he's at Walmart. And he goes, I spent 45 minutes in the toilet paper aisle trying to figure out which fucking toilet. There was single ply. There even, was two even ply. Even after that experience there was that he had? Yeah, because he said now he had all this fucking no, plethora yeah. of choices. Yeah. When he's like, before that was never an issue. He went into this little hut yeah. and he got a fucking roll of toilet paper and he went back and he used it. And then he comes here and he's like, life fly is optimal for my, the <laughs> no, inside he, of my ass. I mean, literally thinking like, you know, oh, no, it's much too rough. Yeah. And, <laughs> and but his point was, was that we bog ourselves down with so much external. Oh, shit. yeah. And my brother was uh, uh, my, my listening to the podcast and he asked me when we were talking about the monks. Um, he, he asked me, you know, why do monks shave their head? Did you ask him that? And I was like, yeah, actually, I did ask him that. And, you know, the monk Derje told me. Uh, Durge, excuse me, uh, said uh, it's just a vanity. It's one less thing you have to worry about. Mm. If you shave your head, you don't worry about combing your hair and trying to look pretty. You're worried about more pressing issues in your life. Mm. And I thought, ah, that's pretty brilliant, man. T to that point, when he, when the guy came back, came back to, the, and is looking at these toilet paper choices, we complicate our own lives. It's kind of set up for us to be, you know, worried about other shit that doesn't matter.
And the official dogma runs like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. The reason for this is both that freedom is in and of itself good, valuable, worthwhile, essential to being human, and because if people have freedom, then each of us can act on our own to do the things that will maximize our welfare, and no one has to decide on our behalf. The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have, and the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. This, I think, is so deeply embedded in the water supply that it wouldn't occur to anyone to question it. It's also deeply embedded in our lives. There was a time when I was a boy when you could get any kind of telephone service you wanted as long as it came from Ma Bell. You rented your phone, you didn't buy it. One consequence of that, by the way, is that the phone never broke. And um, those days are gone. We now have an almost unlimited variety of phones, especially in the world of cell phones. In other aspects of life that are much more significant than uh, buying things, the same explosion of choice is true. Healthcare, it is no longer the case in the United States that you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you what to do. Instead, you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, well, we could do A or we could do B. A has these benefits and these risks. B has these benefits and these risks. What do you want to do? And you say, Doc, what should I do? And the doc says, A has these benefits and risks, and B has these benefits and risks. What do you want to do? And you say, if you were me, doc, what would you do? And the doc says, but I'm not you. And the result is, we call it patient autonomy, which makes it sound like a good thing. But what it really is, is a shifting of the burden and the responsibility for decision making from somebody who knows something, namely the doctor, to somebody who knows nothing and is almost certainly sick and thus not in the best shape to be making decisions, namely the patient. There's enormous marketing of prescription drugs to people like you and me, which if you think about it, makes no sense at all since we can't buy them. Why do they market to us if we can't buy them? The answer is that they expect us to call our doctors the next morning and ask for our prescriptions to be changed. All of this choice has two effects, two negative effects on people. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it very difficult to choose at all. The second effect is that even if we manage to overcome the paralysis and make a choice, we end up less satisfied with the result of the choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from. The more options there are, the easier it is to regret anything at all that is disappointing about the option that you chose. Second, what economists call opportunity costs, how much uh, the, the way in which we value things depends on what we compare them to. Well, when there are lots of alternatives to consider, it is easy to imagine the attractive features of alternatives that you reject that make it you less satisfied with the alternative that you've chosen. Opportunity costs subtract from the satisfaction we get out of what we choose, even when what we choose is terrific. And the more options there are to consider, the more attractive features of these options are going to be reflected by us as opportunity costs. Adding options to people's lives can't help but increase the expectations people have about how good those options will be. And what that's going to produce is less satisfaction with, with results even when they're good results. The reason that everything was better back when everything was worse 
is that when everything was worse, it was actually possible for people to have experiences that were a pleasant surprise. Nowadays, the world we live in, we affluent industrialized citizens, with perfection the expectation, the best you can ever hope for is that stuff is as good as you expect it to be. You will never be pleasantly surprised because your expectations, my expectations, have gone through the roof. The secret to happiness, this is what you all came for. The secret to happiness is low expectations. Clinical depression has exploded in the industrial world in the last generation. I believe a significant, not the only, but a significant contributor to this explosion of depression and also suicide is that people have experiences that are disappointing because their standards are so high, and then when they have to explain these experiences to themselves, they think they're at fault. And so the net result is that we do better in general, objectively, and we feel worse. What it do, Anchor Crew? It's Reesh. It's Medicine Remixed. It's Monday. Thanks for that uh, call in and the kind words. Leo, I think, uh, was your name. That uh, monk story is one of my all-time debunked favorites, by the way. You know, we had that conversation like five years ago, but it's timeless, in my opinion. Still makes me laugh and think every time that I hear it. So, yeah, thanks for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, you know, Leo, you bring up a great question about how to reconcile being flexible with planning and living by a schedule, something I think most or all of us can relate to, you know, this idea of caring more or better and caring less at the same time. It's tough as shit, but it's possible is the short and obvious answer. But I think the practice of cultivating an ability to be a flexible planner, if you will, is taking the world as it is instead of how you wish it was, you know what I mean? Like, it's like that Bruce Lee iconic advice of striving to be like water, you know, be water, my friend. Water doesn't overreact or underreact, it just is. It's so flexible that it just assumes the shape of whatever it's poured into. So I think the punchline here is that it's good to learn from your past mistakes and plan for the future, but you have to maintain the perspective that all that really matters is right now, you know, because you can do all the right things, eat right, meditate, exercise, because you're planning to live a long, healthy life, and then you get hit by a drunk truck driver and die, and it's all over. You know, by expecting shit to happen or not happen, we're kind of kidding ourselves of the reality that is life, that it's unpredictable, it's fucked up, but it's the truth. You know, all that matters is right fucking now. Nothing else really matters other than right now, right? So. Again, I think planning and planning to live a long, healthy life is important, but the problem comes from our expectations that because we do all the right things and plan for the future, that good shit should happen to us and that it should all play out accordingly. You know, I think the way to tweak that maybe, um, you know, that reality is to is is to hack our perspective that now is all that we need to worry about, you know? That, that's how you stay flexible, by cultivating that perspective of the now, and then you can truly experience the world as it is then, and, and you can plan without expecting that it will all work out. It's simple, but not easy, you know what I mean? Like, if, if we could somehow approach our lives like we were watching the ultimate IMAX movie, 
you know, the inner IMAX movie of our own life that plays only in 4D, you know, so you can really experience all the plot twists and the psychological thriller that is each of our lives. I don't know about you, but some of the best movies I've seen were the ones that I didn't expect much from. You know, the pleasant surprises, the ones that weren't ruined by someone telling you what was going to happen because knowing what's going to happen takes the element of surprise and suspense away. You know, the problem with the movie of our lives is we treat death like the ending of the movie instead of the movie just being over. You know what I mean? We, we all know going into any movie that it's going to end. And if we spent all our time thinking about how much time was left before the movie was over, you missed the whole movie. You know, the, the only difference between a real movie and the movie of our lives, I think, is that we know exactly how long a, a real movie lasts and we don't know how long the movie of our life is going to last, though. So we might as well assume all the hype is true, that life is short, and just enjoy the fucking show by taking it in a frame at a time until it's over. You know, it's going to be however long it's going to be. So... Be the hero of your own movie by planning in order to achieve your dreams and make this a movie that you're proud of when it's all said and done. But at the same time, respect the ultimate reality that death is guaranteed but unpredictable. Therefore, all we really have is the moment we're in right now and now and now. So I hope that answered your question, Leo. Those are my four cents this Monday morning. Thanks for the call in. And keep them coming, Remix fam. We, we really love these call-ins, and we love you. Live the shit out of that amazing life of yours. This is Medicine Remix, only on Anchor. To be able to take everything in at the same time and just exist, just be in the moment, like actually feeling what that means not just saying it like oh you gotta you gotta live in the moment bro yeah, yeah. you gotta live in the moment man yolo <laughs> yeah no it's 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 true man and it sounds like such hippie bullshit man it really fucking does but listen i know what it is man to be stressed out about shit i know what it is to have bills i know what it is to have crazy fucking family i know what it is to be hungry i know what it is to sleep in my car i know I know all that shit, man. And I think in those moments of my life, I probably just wasn't ready for the message, you know? I had had other shit to worry about, but... You know when you're trying to, like, find your keys or some shit and you're looking fucking everywhere? You're looking in the most ridiculous places. Fuck, like, I can't find it. Is it in the fridge? You're like, you know, you're just going nuts because, you know, you check the the first places that you would look. But then it winds up being in the most ridiculously obvious place. Like, it's in your back pocket. Sure. You were checking your front pockets and forgot that you had back pockets. That one pocket, yeah. And it it was like, you know... The answer is right there. yeah, Yeah, it was, like, literally, like, on you. Yeah. And that's that's the whole thing. Like, you know, people are so, you know, interested in what's the, what's the key to happiness? Yeah. You know, where can I find this stuff? These people are driving fancy cars. They look happy. I think that's the goal. Getting more money means that you're going to be happier. Right. Meanwhile, you see all these fucking rich ass people yeah. that I mean, are how many, depressed out of their yeah, minds. How many specials have you seen? You know, like people talking about their, you know, hundred million dollars home and I felt so alone. Yeah. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Go get a yacht and yeah. go make a friend. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. But you're right. Take from it what you will. The key to happiness is right on you, man. Yeah. It's it's inside. You're looking the wrong way. And it takes cultivating, man. That's that's what it is. Yeah. Yo, what up?
what up, Anchor? You're listening to Medicine Remix. This is your boy, Debunk, and feeling good. I really am. Uh, and I was looking at my roster this morning for patients I got to see, and uh, I, there's a guy on there that I'm, I'm actually interested to, to see how he's doing. The reason I'm particularly interested in this guy is because I saw him a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, was... You know, he's being treated for a couple of things, anxiety and depression are a couple, but I was checking his blood pressure and it was, it was elevated, it was up there, and, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, what was going on, you know, if he checks his blood pressure at home, that sort of thing, and he just starts going in, he starts talking about, you know, my pressure's up because I'm so mad, and he, he starts telling me about, oh, you know, my daughter said this, oh, she makes me so mad. You know, my boss did this and you know that guy makes me feel so unappreciated and and, and, and you know I, I, I'm always mad about you know these things because these people are constantly uh, making me feel this way so uh, I stopped and I, I said I'm a little confused how, how are they making you feel this way and he says well, well aren't you listening I, I mean and he gives me two or three more reasons and it always ends with, you know, somebody making him feel a certain way. And I said, hey, you know, if I had a Ferrari and I gave the keys to an eight-year-old and he took off and lasted as long as an eight-year-old would last in a Ferrari, brought it back to me, smashed to shit, and just handed me the keys and walked off. If I called you and said, hey man, can you believe this this, this fucking asshole eight-year-old just smashed up my Ferrari? Your first question to me would be, why the fuck would you give your keys to your Ferrari to an eight-year-old, right? And the same way emotionally, this man is walking around handing the keys to his emotional vehicle to everybody in sight, just willy-nilly. So you can't be mad at somebody because you gave them the keys to your emotional car and they smashed it up. You know, you have the right to be mad about something. If you choose to be mad, go on, be mad. If you choose to be irritated, that's okay, fine. You chose that, you do that. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it the best coping mechanism, but you've chosen that, right? When you start to lay blame on other people, but you gave them authority over your domain, we need to be smarter about these things. And he he got it, he understood. And he, you know, he's an older guy, and he looked at me like, yeah, shit, you're right, you're right. How do I do that? And I said, well, <laughs> we got to work on that. And that's going to take some time because you've practiced your whole life being this way. Literally, you've practiced every day. You don't, people practice doing things that aren't necessarily good. And this is an example of that. We need to work on that. And right before he left, he said, I'm going to keep my goddamn keys in my, in my own pocket. 
<laughs> so, so I'm interested in hearing how he's doing. Hopefully, you guys find that helpful. It's something I apply to my life daily. And and you know, don't hand out your emotional keys, y'all. Those are yours. Don't be mad when people smash up your shit. <laughs> All right, love y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to us on Anchor, the only place you're gonna get medicine remixed. Peace. There's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. There's some magical amount. I don't know what it is. I'm pretty confident that we have long since passed the point where options improve our welfare. Now, as a policy matter, the thing to think about is this. What enables all of this choice in industrial societies is material affluence. There are lots of places in the world, and we have heard about several of them, where the, their problem is not that they have too much choice. Their problem is that they have too little. So the stuff I'm talking about is the peculiar problem of modern, affluent Western societies. And what is so frustrating and infuriating is this, these expensive, complicated choices, it's not simply that they don't help, they actually hurt, they actually make us worse off. If some of what enables people in our societies to make all of the choices we make were shifted to societies in which people have too few options, not only would those people's lives be improved, but ours would be improved also. This is what economists call a Pareto improving move. Income redistribution will make everyone better off, not just poor people because of how all this excess choice plays us. So, to conclude, if you shatter the fishbowl so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom, you have paralysis. If you shatter this fishbowl so that everything is possible, you decrease satisfaction. You increase paralysis and you decrease satisfaction. Everybody needs a fishbowl. This one is almost certainly too limited, perhaps even for the fish, certainly for us. But the absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and, uh, I suspect, disaster. What's good, Anchorhood? It's Reesh again. Big ups to Josh from Intelligame Radio. Thanks for that uh, awesome call in and showing love, my man. I totally agree about how much of a game changer that Barry Schwartz uh, TED Talk is on the paradox of choice. I don't think it's an accident that it has like over 2 million views or something like that on YouTube. And I think anyone who has a Netflix account can fucking understand what uh, the man is saying about having too many choices. But, you know, the paradox goes as superficial as what to watch on your subscription video service to as deep as choices about do not resuscitate orders and choices you make about your loved ones at the end of their lives and that's exactly why we need to have conversations with the people that matter to us about who we are and what we value in our lives to know everything from what we truly want to do with our lives to how we want to die you know what is what's more important to us quality of life or quantity of life, money or time. We have to diagnose who the fuck we actually are to help us make these decisions. You know, the more knowledge of who we truly are and what we truly value gives us the ability to sharpen our decision-making blades. And I, and I use that cutting metaphor intentionally because the words decision and incision are derived from the same Latin roots meaning to cut. You know, in any surgical field, our training and education relies a lot on anatomy, knowing where exactly we are is crucial in order to take a successful surgical approach to a problem. 
and that first cut, you know, that first incision is everything in, in the same way that knowing exactly where you are anatomically is essential in making that right incision, knowing exactly who we are and what our reasons for doing are, that's essential in making the right decision for us, you know, uh, the right decisions for us in our own lives or you know, if it's in the context of medicine and healthcare, the decision for the patient is or should be the North Star to help us make those decisions in their best interest. And I like to think of an incision as deliberately cutting into a material or tissue from the outside in relation to anatomical landmarks. While I like to think of decision as deliberately cutting away choices from the inside out in relation to our true selves, our true values, and our true intentions and it's no wonder that within the field of medicine the branch of surgery is often regarded as the art of decision making not incision making decision making and after five years of training in the field of orthopedic surgery i can tell you that no two days are the same you're constantly being thrown into unpredictable scenarios especially in the context of of trauma and trauma surgery it's chaos that's somewhat controlled with how you follow detailed protocols and algorithms designed to create a system of thinking and making decisions quickly and effectively while making sure not to miss anything. You know, your ability to decide what to do in order to best help your patient is the single most important skill in the skill set of a surgeon. And you know, it's funny, in medical school there's a joke that they tell you during orientation that goes something like, half of what you'll learn in medical school will be shown to be either dead wrong or out of date within five years of your graduation. And the problem is that nobody can tell you which fucking half. They leave out the fucking part, of course. But uh, the punchline, even if it's somewhat hyperbolized, is that medicine is probably much more of an art than a science when we look at the fact that only a percentage of the decisions that we make on a daily basis are actually based on actual evidence. It's true. You know, intuition might be just as, if not more important than tuition. You know what I mean? And you find that intuition when what you know meets what you feel. You know, it's the intersection of the two. And as far as the decisions we make in and for our own lives, that intuition formula completely relies on your knowledge of who you are and what makes you tick. And having the conversations to know who our loved ones are and what truly makes them tick starts to open conversations about the stuff that nobody wants to talk about, you know, those life and death decisions that rely completely on our knowledge of the wishes of our loved ones and, you know, ourselves. So hope something in that rant was useful. <laughs> Thanks again uh, for all the call-ins today. This was a blast. You're listening to Medicine Remixed. It's your boy, Reesh. Same peace. What's going on, Dean Reach? This is Josh over at Intelligame Radio. Thanks a ton for the work you do. It's super creative and innovative, and that fusion of self-help and hip-hop is really cool to start the day with. I really like that you did a segment about decision paralysis. That TED Talk, when I first listened to it, completely changed my perspective. It is interesting going into a grocery store and realizing just how many choices you have for salad dressing, for toilet paper, whatever. I think that the overabundance of choice just makes life more complicated because now you have to spend mental energy to process that decision. 
and that gives you less mental, mental energy to enjoy the decision. So I'm glad that you brought it up. I'm looking forward to talking a bit about it more. But in the meantime, keep up the awesome work. Looking forward to hearing what you got next. <laughs> Thank you so much for this segment with the monk and uh, the flexibility because, man, uh, I'm personally a lot into self-mastery and I consider spirituality to be something uh, that should get a lot of attention in order to become one's greatest self. And I'm very disciplined and focused on that. So I'm basically doing nothing hedonistic or anything that way. And um, the story was very, 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 very funny for me because my mom also always tells me that I have to be more flexible because I take my schedule quite seriously. And um, that's that was very, very funny. And I don't know, how do you think about like the paradox, so to say, between flexibility and being accountable to what you plan or planning in general? Because obviously planning has a lot of benefits. <laughs> 